When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. A lot going down in the Alex Murdoch trial this morning. We're on a lunch break, so let's get right down to the nitty-gritty. So far, we've lost two jurors to COVID. Now, of course, the defense is going to take this opportunity to demand a mistrial or at least a delay. If the judge is smart, he will stick to his guns and pray they don't run out of alternate jurors. They've got six of them. Two of those alternates are now on the jury. Um, Six is a good number because typically you don't go past six alternates. And there have been cases, for instance, um, the Scott Peterson case. We lost a lot of jurors during that trial. You have to have plenty of alternates. Typically in that jurisdiction, they pick two alternates. Here, they've picked six, thank goodness, but two out because of COVID. Let's hope it didn't spread to anyone else. And the clerk of courts, a fine lady, uh, is also out with COVID. But that aside, the trial is going forward. We got a bombshell today. It turns out that in the middle of the trial, and I hate when this happens, the state has gotten evidence that they tried to get over a year ago about the movements of the car, uh, like the navigation system. Notice we haven't heard that, uh, where you can tell where the car, Alex Murdoch's Suburban, moved the night of the murders. Well, apparently they've got it in now. But is it too late to be allowed into evidence? There are very strict rules about handing scientific data over to the defense in time for the defense expert to review it and prepare a cross-examination. That didn't happen because the state has just gotten it. We'll see what happens with that. In the meantime, another bombshell, blood found on Alex Murdoch's steering wheel of his Chevy Suburban. Uh, With me, an all-star panel to try to make sense of what we know right now. First of all, I'm going to go out to Dale Carson, high-profile criminal defense attorney out of the Jacksonville jurisdiction and also former Fed with the FBI as an FBI agent. Listen, this is a big deal for the state. And I know you've tried a lot of cases, Dale, and typically you want to go out with a bang, not a whimper. So I believe that the state is working up to their best evidence. They had to lay a foundation for it. And today we're hearing about blood on Murdoch's steering wheel. Hey, Christine, in the control room, could you show, you know I love to two videos especially dear to my heart but this is the one where Murdoch not the two shot but with Murdoch in the vehicle in his white t-shirt talking to police the night of the murders Christine it's the videos body cam video everyone has stated so far there he is nice and fresh and clean just as fresh as a daisy look at him not even a tiny speck no blood There's no blood. Uh Uh-oh, and he's not crying either. Whoopsie. Um, Okay, that aside, Dale Carson, remember, everyone has said he didn't have any blood on him. So how did blood get on the steering wheel of his car? Well, obviously, he didn't correctly tell the investigators what truly happened at the events, and why would he? He is innocent until proven guilty. And in a situation like this, where... All of a sudden, there's new evidence about 
where the car was, when it was in park, when it was the doors were opened. All of those things are now being attempted to be brought into evidence. And that may ultimately prove his downfall because those are fixed items. The steering wheel blood's a fixed item. Turning the car on and off and being in and out of the car is a fixed item. And if it's different from his actual original testimony, when it was most fresh in his mind, and that's why we want to interview individuals as quickly as possible and as separately as possible. Add to that the fact that he could also be charged with destruction of evidence because we know he was wearing one shirt when this all began, and it seems to have handily disappeared, and his hands are clean when he's filmed giving the interview in the actual squad car. Okay, you know what? I don't know what you just said. Because what I asked you was, you, you did a really good job. You danced all the way around my question. My question is, how can he explain blood on his steering wheel when his shirt and his hands, which we see in the video, are clean? Now, wait a minute. You said something about he doesn't want to tell everything up front. Or he doesn't, oh, I know what you said. You said he's got the right to remain silent. It's too late for that. He gave a full-on explanation the night of the murders to the police. He's locked into that story, Carson. Well, he's got a statement, but that may not be the truth of the matter, obviously. Well, of course it's not the truth of the matter, for Pete's sake. Well, and, and if you're lying and it, and it reduces your credibility, if he should take the stand, the jury's certainly going to become aware of that, and they're going to use that to judge his you know credibility. What, Carson? Bill Carson, you just made me laugh for the first time today. Thank you. If he takes a stand, there is no way an H-E-double... Help me out, Chris McDonough. I, I don't know what planet uh, Carson is beaming down from right now. Number one, Chris McDonough. Let me introduce him. Director of Cold Case Foundation, former homicide detective. That's the part I like the best. Host of a YouTube channel, which I like a lot, The Interview Room. And you can find him at coldcasefoundation.org. Okay, Chris, I'm going to start over with you. Don't make me spank you, because I will. I will. How can he explain blood on his steering wheel? So, Nancy, what's the old saying? Uh, the devil's in the details. He, the, the only way you can explain that is if you've come in contact with that blood uh, somewhere around that crime scene. And how it gets there, uh, that's up to him to you know, the defense to, to explain, you know, how it got there. Uh, there is one part in the 911 call where you can hear uh, in the mm -hmm. background a car, the vehicle. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, if that's the link to this, that the prosecution uh, sounds like they're connecting the dots here, uh, the defense has got, you know, quite a run uh, to go at to say that uh, it was, you know, Put there by some other dude. Well, they're either going to have to say that or they'll have to say somehow they've got to explain with a straight face how he managed to get clean clothes and clean hands. But somehow he's going to have to explain getting back to the car and getting either Paul or Maggie's or both of their blood on his steering wheel because that's where it's going. Hey, Christine, do we have the new body cam video from the night of the murders where they have Murdoch raise his shirt up and they're looking at him to make sure he doesn't have a... Oh, great. Guys, I want you to see the... Oh, here we go. Here we go. Thank you. Okay. They're coming to the scene. They're looking around. It's pitch dark. There's Murdoch talking. They're shining a light on his waist right there to make sure he doesn't have a gun stuck in his pants. Um, can you play with the sound, Christine? Okay, let's hear it, guys. The scene is secure. Got a whiskey fox, whiskey Mike, both gunshot wounds to the head. Sir, I want to let you know because of the scene, I do, I did go get a gun and bring okay. it down here. It's in your vehicle. It, I just you have any guns on you at all? Leaning, no, sir. It's leaning up okay. against the side of my car. Okay. You're, you're fine, man. You're fine. Turn around for me. I don't have any. Gun. Okay. Yes, sir. I see that. Okay. This is your wife and son. And son. Okay. Bad. It's bad. It's bad. Take the pulses. Yes, sir. 
Okay. Um, the behavior he's exhibiting right there. He's got a completely straight face. He's speaking coherently. Hey, Christine, could you play that one one more time? And um, then later I'll go to our cut 11. Could we hear 10 one more time? I want to make sure I heard it all. I'm seeing this secure. Got a Whiskey Fox, Whiskey Mike, both gunshot wounds to the head. Sir, I want to let you know because of the scene, I do. I did go get a gun and bring okay. it down here. It's in your vehicle. It, I just you have any guns on you at all? Leaning, no, sir. It's leaning okay. up against the side of my car. Okay. You're you're fine, man. You're fine. Turn around for me. I don't have any. Okay. Yes, sir. I see that. Okay. This is your wife and son. And son. Okay. It's bad. It's bad. I take the pulses. Yes, sir. <laughs> Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. Sir, I want to let you know because of the scene, I do. I did go get a gun and bring okay. it down here. It's in your vehicle. It, I just, you have any guns on you at all? Leaning, no, sir. It's leaning okay. up against the side of my car. Okay. You're, you're fine, man. You're fine. Turn around for me. I don't have any. Gun. Okay. Yes, sir. I see that. Okay. This is your wife and son. And son. Okay. It's bad. It's bad. I checked the pulses. Yes, sir. <laughs> Okay, guys, I want to go to Dr. Michelle Dupree joining me, uh, pathologist, medical examiner, former detective, and author of Homicide Investigation Field Guide, and she is there on location in South Carolina. You can find her at dmichelledupreemd.com. Dr. Dupree, thank you for being with us. Did you notice, doctor, that he wasn't crying at all, that he was speaking perfectly coherently and I've written down what he says he says sir I want to let you know that because of the scene I do I did go get a gun and bring it down here and then he goes um, it's leaning up against the side of my car and he goes I don't have anything and then and only then does he go a little sniffy right there he is perfectly coherent, Dr. Dupree. Yes, Nancy, he is. He seems very calm. I also noticed that he folds his arms across his chest in a very, what I would consider, defensive posture. Um, this, to me, is not like someone who has just witnessed a horrific um, scene, uh, his beloved wife and son. Um, I think this is unusual. Well, his okay, I can't wait to hear how seen. Yeah, ooh, ooh, that's really good. Is that you, Carson? Jump in, Dale Carson. Come on, you would never say that. Not in that situation. The word seen is something that talks to exactly what it is in reality. It's a scene. It's been created. But who created it? Oh, that's really insightful, actually. I was all ready to fight with you. But you're right. You're absolutely right. Now, hey, Christine, let's play cut 11 more of the body cam video. Well, they are dead, aren't they? Yes, sir. That's what it, that's what it looks like. <laughs> when was the last time you were here with them? Or talk to them or anything like that. Um. It was earlier tonight. Uh, I, don't, I don't know the exact time, but okay. I left. I was probably gone an hour and a half from my mom's, and I saw them about forty-five minutes before that. There he goes, man. He's got that time, uh, his timeline in his own head, even though it's not uh, borne out by the facts. Did you hear that, Chris McDonough? He says an hour and a half. He's sticking to that he was at his mom. The story he was at his mom's for an extended period of time. It's about a twenty-minute drive there. It's about a twenty-minute drive back. And he is trying to account for 90 minutes. So he's saying he was at his mom's 50 minutes. That's not what happened. Yeah, and, and there's a couple other things going on here, Nancy. The, the fact that when he's asked that question, you notice he turns away from that officer. Uh, and then it kind of buys him a moment to think through 
what his response is going to be. And, and, and mind you, remember, in front of him is his deceased wife and his deceased son. And he's walking back on the telephone, uh, calling and speaking with somebody. Um, so in the business, we would call this does not look right, DLR. Well, it also is, I like what's that. his does statement? Does not look right, DLR. Hey, Dale Carson, Dale, it, let's watch it again together. Christine, could you play right. that again? Because now that, um, now that Chris has pointed it out, he does turn away from the question. He's absolutely correct. Let's take another listen. Well, they are dead, aren't they? Yes, sir. That's what it, that's what it looks like. <laughs> when was the last time you were here with them? Or talked to them or anything like that? Um. It was earlier tonight. Uh, I, don't, I don't know the exact time, but okay. I left. I was probably gone an hour and a half from my mom's, and I saw them about 45 minutes before that. Okay. You know what's interesting? When I look at a witness to determine if they're lying, you will notice that they either blink a lot or they look away, they pause, they fidget with something in order to calm themselves to continue with their lie that they may be fabricating right then and there. And that's exactly what Chris McDonough pointed out. What about it, Dale Carson? All right. Well, that's certainly true. But what I listen to is his words. And one of the questions he says, are they dead? Well, that's not what you would routine. You would, can you help? Is there, you know, there's the ambulance on the way. I mean, can you really believe that that's how you would approach that situation and, and describe your son and your wife as T-H-E-Y? No, no, that doesn't smell right. You know, we're, we're looking at body cam video that the jury has just seen. A lot going down in the courtroom right now. Uh, very telling the way he behaves. Christine, one more time, can I see that last bit of videotape you played, the body cam? Well, they are dead, aren't they? Yes, sir. That's what it, that's what it looks like. <laughs> when was the last time you were here with them? Or talk to them or anything like that. Um. It was earlier tonight. Uh, I, don't, I don't know the exact time, but okay. I left. I was probably gone an hour and a half from my mom's, and I saw them about 45 minutes before that. Now, the jury has seen this in the last couple of days, and we have been wrangling with authorities to get our mitts on it. We finally did. I also notice again, uh, Dr. Michelle Dupree, that he is perfectly coherent when he is spouting off his timeline and other cogent facts. But then every once in a while, you'll hear a little uh, whine or a little <coughs> that. But he is not showing any uh, indication that he is bereft. That's true, Nancy. And also... When he's in the car being interviewed, he is very calculating. He, to me, he is thinking of all of his words before he says them. He's very slow. He's thinking about what he's going to say before he answers. I think this is telltale. Doctor, if, if you did yeah. something like this, would you try to disassociate from it in order to explain it? So you are emotionally not connected to it. And that would explain Absolutely. why he is simply so the disassociation allows him to call the killing of his wife and his son a scene instead of this horrible circumstance. So he's living in two separate worlds. Absolutely. Living in two separate worlds. I'm wondering how Murdoch has been behaving in court uh, and where his family is sitting now. Guys, we've just shown you body cam video that the jury has already seen, and now two alternates have taken the place of other jurors. We are also learning, and this is where you come in, Giovanni Masucci joining us, Senior Digital Forensic Examiner. Um, 
over 35 years, by the way, of expertise in this field, we are learning that the state is just now getting navigational data to show where the car went and when. What could possibly have taken so long? Well, as we heard, thanks, Nancy. Well, we heard from the FBI technician that the, the data infotainment system, he said it was the first time he's ever seen that it was encrypted. That being the case, they also took over a year to come up with their own software program to try to break that encryption and get the data out. And so it took them a long time. Now, obviously, they're putting in a format that's readable that they can utilize in court. Um, and so it may have taken them an extra time to get it to the state. Uh, prosecution to go ahead and start presenting it. You know, I'm just trying to figure out what they're really going to be able to prove with it. Uh, Giovanni Masucci, what do you believe the state will be able to show? What's the point of bringing it in now? Well, let's think about this. Remember, they said that uh, the phone was, was thrown from a vehicle, right? What do we see that they uncovered as that the, the, the federal examiner he could tell when the windows were raised and lowered. To me, that's important. When were they raised and lowered? Do we have date? We don't have any date. Do we have a date? That has not been brought into court. Um, I'm curious to see if they're going to come up with any date, you know, time, exactly when that was raised and lowered. Was it in that time frame? Right? So that, to me, is important. Um, the other thing is that, you know, you have times. He says he was gone for an hour and a half, and... You know, they've received calls from, they said, the, the in and out of park between 9.06 and 10.13. Quite interesting. And they don't know if it was in motion or not. That's fine. But was he starting and stopping? You know, what was the process? Or, or, you know, is the state, you know, when he gets on the stand, they're going to grill him on this. You know, where did he stop? Why did he stop? And so this is going to be interesting, especially that they did bring in cell tower analysis that they did. Well, phone. they may be able to bring in Bluetooth information, too, when it connected to the car's Bluetooth to his phone. And that would absolutely. demonstrate a absolutely positive time that he was not where he said he was. Right. And, it, and they did grab a Bluetooth information, which showed the two calls made around 10.06. So that would be interesting um, to see exactly. I mean, they couldn't get all the data that they wanted because they didn't even come up with GPS data. So they had to rely on cell tower information as well from the carrier. But if his so cell phone linked up to a Wi-Fi at the property, which certainly there is a Wi-Fi at the property, they should be able to determine precisely what time he was at the property and when he left. Right. If it was connected okay, to Wi-Fi. At, at the very best case scenario, Giovanni Masucci, what will the state be able to prove with the new evidence I, I, that he was in the area that he actually was in the area and that he wasn't telling the exact well, we already truth know that it. we know he was in the area because it's on a video taken right. by paul right. we hear his voice we know he was there so how right. is this going to help the state i mean i think i know the answer but it's, you're the expert it, so i'm asking it, you what do you believe i believe that he lied for sure he definitely lied. Okay, this is what I think it's going to show. I believe that the new evidence, I'm going out on a limb here, is going to show exactly where the car went, at what time, how long the car was in park at his mother's house. We know he was there because her caretaker said so. How long he was there and when he came back. That is what I think the new evidence is going to show. And as Giovanni just told us, it may very well show if he slowed down to throw something out of the car, if the windows went down along the way in his ride to his mother's home, if he detoured somewhere uh, to bury the items or to get rid of his bloody clothing. That could be extrapolated from those stops or the windows going up and down. That's what I think they're bringing it into show. Now, interestingly, hey, I'm hearing in my ear, I've got Ann Emerson joining us straight out of the courtroom, senior investigative reporter with WCIV ABC and the creator of Unsolved South Carolina, the Murdoch Murders, Money and Mystery, a daily podcast. Ann, thanks for being with us. Tell me, first of all, about the evidence that the state is trying to bring in. Who will it help? What is it? Well, they're working really hard right now at trying to 
bring in all of this DNA swabs that they took. And really what we're getting to the bottom of is who was who was actually what they're be what they're able to get out of this DNA is who they can exclude. Right. So so right now they're able to uh, go over all of the different things that they've been testing from his shirt to uh, the defendant's shirt to his shorts. They're looking at the car. They're looking at the steering wheel. Um, they're looking for places that they need to test for DNA in order to exclude other people and whoever they need to include. And right now, what we've heard over and over again from this DNA uh, testing that was done, the forensics is we are able to include uh, Maggie and Paul, of course, but also Alec at several of these points that they've tested, but not anyone else. So that's what we're hearing really through this testimony. And it is really as you know, really long. They have to make sure that they go through every single thing. They dot every I, they cross every T, because they want uh, the jury to know that they've done absolutely everything to exclude other possible suspects. So I think that's really the crux of what we're looking at right now. Some of the really interesting things that have come out is that they've been able to uh, look at um, one of the things that pointed out was one of the things that they don't, they did not find, and that was that raincoat that we've talked about so much, that raincoat that ended up at the mom's house, that raincoat, according to these forensic experts, did not have any blood on it. And Emerson, you're saying the shirt is positive for Paul and Maggie's DNA. Would that be from blood? Um, right now, they're saying that Paul's, yes, Paul's, Paul Murdoch's uh, DNA that would be from a blood test that they did would have been found on the shirt. They were also looking at Maggie's blood on that shirt and that Alec contributed to that shirt as well, of course, because he's wearing the T-shirt, right? So, yes, they, they're talking so about where they found Paul blood. There's 10, and Maggie's I think there 12 blood, points that they're looking at on not, that T-shirt. So it's Paul and Maggie's blood, not touch DNA, correct? From what I understand, they did the blood tests and now they've gone back in and done DNA tests to be able to to provide more more conclusive evidence of who they are who they're finding um, on that t-shirt. Okay, uh, what we were talking about when you first came out is the car data that the state apparently has just gotten. That is the data we're discussing. What do you believe it is and what do you believe it will show? Well, what I'm hearing is that this is GPS points um, and, and I, I'm thinking this is already what you were going through as I was running down the steps out of the courthouse today was that there is all of this new uh, information coming out of the OnStar, OnStar that GM wants to provide for this trial. They've been watching it along with everybody else. And when they heard that it took a year to open this up and be able to look and unlock some of this data, they were like, hold on, we have a lot more for you. Now, what the defense and the prosecution is saying is that this is really interesting data points for both of us, and we really need to go through it. The defense only got a hold of these uh, of this GPS information as of Saturday. So they've got, a, they said, massive amount of data that they need to go through. So we're waiting to see if this somehow is going to create any kind of delay as we as we start going forward. And, um, and Nancy, I think that did, I, I want to jump ahead. in here for a second, if you don't mind. So I, I also no. don't want to uh, forget that we have testimony from uh, Shelly Smith, who remember he shows up that night and tries to convince her that his timeline is at least 30 to 40 minutes different than what she testified to of being about 15 or 20 minutes. That car data that they've just received will also substantiate uh, you know, what the correct timeline is. To your point earlier that he did go over to his mother's house at that point. Uh, but remember, he was trying to influence her to change her story uh, because he probably right. knew that data was going to be an issue. You know, another issue about this uh, GPS data coming in right now, the defense could move to have it excluded because it was not handed over ahead of time. The state could then argue back, this is legal strategy, that it is newly discovered evidence. If they can show, they just got it. When you get newly discovered evidence, you can bring that into trial over the defense's objection. You can't have evidence and you just sit on it, not hand it over, and then jump up and claim it's newly discovered. But if it truly is newly discovered, the judge 
can let it in. Right now, as I understand it, Ann Emerson, the defense is not trying to exclude it. They, in fact, want to study it and see if it can help them as well. Absolutely, Nancy. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's exactly what they were saying this morning. Those were the words they were using. Um, you're in the head of what's happening with the state, I think. I mean, they were saying this is newly discovered evidence. This is stuff that we didn't know about and we wouldn't have known about if this, you know, the people that were running this on-store system came forward and told us what was happening. So it's really interesting, too, the way the defense is handling it rather than saying, hold on, this is totally out of order, you know, concerned. They're like, bring it. We want to see what it is. Absolutely. We, we believe that this is just going to solidify our case as well. So it, it was it was a moment, though, because you could also see like, you know, just last week, the defense was calling for a mistrial, you know, which was yeah. extraordinary, yeah. you know, last week when that happened. And with all of these things that are happening right now, we've got a couple of jurors that are now out with COVID. There's this concern. We've got a mass mandate in that courtroom now. Um, we've got that concern. And then you've got this newly discovered evidence you would think that the defense strategy, and tell me if I'm wrong, but like that the defense strategy would be looking at, oh, well, here's an opportunity for us to seriously slow down this trial. No, they're like, let's see the evidence. We're gonna try and look at it as quickly as we can, but we're still, we're still in the game, is what I'm getting from it. Guys, Nancy, I want you to hear, go ahead, go ahead. Nancy, I believe that if after they get their own expert to look at the data and if it proves that it will go against their client that they'll act to try to get it suppressed, but because the OnStar is gonna show breadcrumbs, that's gonna give you some really detailed data on the movement of that vehicle. It's gonna take, it's gonna take days for them to analyze it, which they will have. You know, I don't know why the lawyers don't think they can work overtime after the jury goes home. Uh, we should not be having any hearings or any work done on the jury's time. The lawyers need to stay late or come in over the weekend to do that work so the jury is not held up. Guys, I want you to hear, and again, this is where our experts coming in today, Evidence about phone pings in our cut one and two. Um, we haven't heard a lot about the pinging, but we are now. Take a listen, first of all, regarding Maggie and Paul's last phone pings in our cut one. This is uh, 8.04 to 8.05 p.m. Okay. And so now we're seeing some, some hits across this Moselle Road, correct? That's correct. So at 8.06.20, it's uh, here on uh, near Moselle Road. Uh, just north of the driveway. Okay. And uh, from there, it moves towards the dog kennel or the hangar, then kind of up the driveway, and then finally winding up back at the house uh, at about uh, 814. 838.07, uh, where do we see that phone uh, uh, start pinging? There's a 56 meter hit at uh, right around the dog kennels. Now we're going to move on uh, to Maggie's. Yeah, about 4.25 p.m. and then ending at about 7.05 p.m. The phone's generally in this uh, West Ashley area. And then we see a series of hits with Maggie's phone. Uh, these start at what time? They start at 7.07 and end at 7.50. It's traveling from the Charleston area uh, west towards um, Moselle or Almeida. And here uh, we have a hit at 7.50 p.m. 7.50.20 p.m., correct? Yes, sir. Uh, and where is this? Uh, that's uh, right in Walterboro, actually, right here. Did you get any more tower information off of Maggie's phone for the rest of the evening? That no. That 7.50 p.m. was the last tower hit uh, I received. That was on Maggie's phone. 7.50 p.m. is the last tower hit that the expert received. Now, that was about Paul and Maggie's phones. Now, take a listen. This is critical to the phone pings from Alex Murdoch's phone that night. Our cut to Christine. We're looking at uh, whose phone? We're looking at Alex's phone. Uh, here we have a number of calls between 6.40 and 9.10 p.m. And they're all using tower 159-263. And that's, that's the one shown, uh, which faces north and is consistent with being in the area of uh, the Moselle property. Now we're looking at 9.12 to 9.18. Okay. And in the 9.12 uh, phone record, where does Alex's uh, cell phone pick? Which sector? Uh, use the sector three on tower 159263, which is the one closest to Moselle. All right, so somewhere south or close to the border of this tower, correct? Yes. 
And then at 9.18 p.m., we see uh, a ping uh, off of this tower, correct? Yes, off of uh, 159217, which is closer to Vaughnville. 920, uh, from 9.20 to 9.46, uh, there's a handful of calls, uh, all using tower 159217, but using sector Q that kind of faces towards the Almeida address. Okay. Um, and then there's also one RTT hit at, two, um, at 9.34, at about 2.09 miles, uh, which is consistent with being in the area of the Almeida uh, residence. If you like data and you like trial work, this is a symphony to your ears. Ann Emerson, WCIV and host of a hit podcast called Unsolved South Carolina, The Murdoch Murders Money Mystery, explain what we just heard. Well, what it's doing really is it's it's tracking uh Alec Murdoch's movements and his, and Maggie's. We, we're now getting a very clear idea of, of the timeline once again. They're just narrowing it and narrowing it. I bet they're now going to be able to take these GPS points that we're going to be learning about that have just been unlocked from that OnStar system. Uh, I'm thinking that this is going to play right into where we saw these pings. Now, the pings are really important as far as the cell phone towers because they're going to have to start following him where he's going and when he's getting there. So this is really going to be an enormous part of the state's case as far as to be able to track exactly where he says he was and where you're able to show where he was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because, you know, the eye in the sky never lies. Hey, Christine, could you back it up to that first graph you were showing about Murdoch's phone pinging? Because it's placing him between Moselle and Alameda, where his mother lives. Okay, till 9, p till 9 10 p.m., his calls are near Moselle. Same tower. 12 to 18 pings near Moselle. Then suddenly... 920 to 946 pings near Alameda and that's almost exactly what the housekeeper says that he came in, he was there about 20 minutes and left then from 946 near Alameda we see him traveling at 952, right at 953 between Alameda and Moselle 1006, he calls 911 at Moselle at Moselle. Now, I guarantee you, uh, Del Carson, your veteran trial lawyer, the jury is going to have this and go through it with a fine tooth comb when they get in the Girard deliberation room. But it's on the state to make it as clear as Christine and the New York control room just made it. And what they're going to have to do, Dale, is they're going to have to overlay, overlay, overlay. They're going to have to put the pings. They're going to have to put the GPS tracking data. They're going to have to put uh, all of those cell phone calls and texts in there to basically put him at the scene at the time of the murders. That's a lot of evidence. Well, it is, but it's easily expressed on a whiteboard where you take and show the pattern. And you can show that it's all connected and that the initial interview of Alex was incorrect and therefore not accurate because he's defending against what he was actually engaged in, which is, of course, slaughtering his son and his wife. And although he's got the opportunity to defend himself and we've yet to hear his side he's not yet been convicted but it's likely if the jurors can follow that pattern that's drawn out for them about pings and where they were at what time in addition to the information brought out by GM from their OnStar tracking system he's likely to end up in a convicted situation. To Giovanni Masucci joining us, senior digital forensic examiner. Giovanni, I'm so glad you're with us today to make sense of all of the technological data. But I remember one of my favorite props I used in closing arguments was a big jar, a clear jar of muddy water. And when I did my closing argument, I would start off and then I would address what the defense had said and I'd shake it and it would get all 
cloudy. You couldn't see into the jar. And I would sit it down on the state's table and finish my closing argument outlining the state's case and attacking the defense case. And by the time I finished, one hour later, the jar was clear again. So my question to you is, Giovanni, how will the defense try to muddy the water on the ping, the cell phone ping data? Well, they may take into account if there was any man-made um, interference or if there was any natural um, impediments. And if the, because what happens is that they're going to try to take it apart. I don't see how they're going to do it only because, you know, when they're doing cell tower triangulations, they've got the data from the mobile carriers and the towers and the sectors because there's three sectors on a tower. And so we see where the, the pings were hitting all in the location of where the, the, the crime, the crime, the scene, the crime. And so I think it's going to be difficult for them to take that apart and saying, well, you know, why did it go to this tower? And, you know, I think it's, you know, because it can travel from tower to tower if there's traffic there, if there's natural impediments. But I think the state has a really good case as far as showing the pings and adding the GPS data and all the other data that they have and putting it on a whiteboard. I, I've been on another murder trial for um, the prosecution where they had to do this. Um, I had to back up um, the FBI um, um, cast folks that were doing analysis and I did the phones and we took all the data and we put it on whiteboards and showed the travel of the suspect that committed the crime. And I think this is gonna be mm -hmm. awesome for the jury to see in, in such a basic terminology, not to overpower them, let's put it that way. Well, and this is rural, right, I, so there's use of the cell phone towers is quite limited and more exact than in an urban setting. Sure, sure. Interesting, interesting that you said that because I believe that the FBI and others can narrow down cell phone pings within, you know, 100 feet. It can be done. I think the way the defense is going to try and muddy the water and the state needs to anticipate this, I'm sure they have, and be ready to shoot it down before it hits its mark, that being the jury, they're going to argue, well, hey, hey, cell phone pings off towers is not an exact science. You know, Moselle, Almeida, they're fairly close together. We're not sure exactly where the pings are. Uh, if the pings can identify where Murdoch was at that moment. That's what they're going to do. And the state has got to be ready for that. That's exactly what they're going. Now, I want to circle back to DNA. I want you to take a listen. We're talking about the steering wheel first and our cut six. They are all swabs that were taken from the Chevy Suburban. So it appears that these swabs were collected because they were Blue Star positive, which to my understanding is a presumptive test used by the crime scene unit to indicate areas of possible blood staining. Um, since they were already presumptively tested, I used a confirmatory test to test these swabs for the presence of blood. So sled items 51 through 55 and 57 through 60 were all negative with that testing, which means um, there is no human blood identified. Item 56, which was swabs collected from steering wheel, had a positive result, which means blood was identified on this item. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. They are all swabs that were taken from the Chevy Suburban. So it appears that these swabs were collected because they were Blue Star positive, which to my understanding is a presumptive test used by the crime scene unit to indicate areas of possible blood staining. Um, since they were already presumptively tested, I used a confirmatory test to test these swabs for the presence of blood. So sled items 51, through 55 and 57 through 60 were all negative with that testing, which means um, there is no human blood identified. 
item 56, which was swabs collected from steering wheel, had a positive result, which means blood was identified on this item. Now, we got to figure out how Murdoch is going to explain Paul and Maggie's blood on his steering wheel. But believe you me, he will come up with something. Believable? Don't know. But he will come up with something, and it will be uh, voiced by the attorney Hartpoolian. Now, let's take a listen to what we learned about Murdoch's t-shirt and shorts in our Cut 7. The white shirt from Richard Murdoch was submitted with a blood request. Um, on June 9th of 2021, I processed this item for the possible presence of blood. So that entails I first visually examined the shirt for any areas that are consistent with the staining of blood. Then I tested these items that I have indicated um, for the, with our phenolphthalein uh, presumptive test for blood. Two stains were indicated or were tested. Um, both stains were positive for the possible presence of blood. So the shorts also were uh, submitted with a blood request. They were processed in a similar manner. Um, several stains were tested. However, two were positive for the possible presence of blood. Um, a stain located at the front left interior pocket of the pair of green shorts was forwarded for further analysis. Um, this was processed on the same June 9th date of 2021. The shorts were also additionally processed at the same time the shirt was additionally processed um, to retrieve a second stain that was uh, indicated as the possible presence of blood. So the presumptive results for this stain were that it was positive for the possible presence of blood. Okay, we know there's blood on the clothes, but what kind of blood? To Dr. Michelle Dupree, it's very, very significant. Was it a transfer where he had been uh, checking Paul and Maggie's pulse and then transferred the blood? Was it spatter, which would have indicated he was standing right there at the time the gun went off? It's very important. What type of blood stain was it? Exactly, Nancy, and I don't think we know that at this point. As you said, if it's spatter, that is a much, much different situation than if he had touched something and then simply transferred it to his clothing. Okay, you know, a lot is going to be made of the blood evidence. Joining me, WCIVABC's Ann Emerson. What about it, Ann? Well, you know, that's exactly what Michelle Dupree was just saying. Dr. Dupree's talking about we've got to figure out if it's blood spatter and what, or if it's transferred. Now, this was a lot of what was going on in pretrial motions because the defense was fighting tooth and nail to keep the blood spatter expert out of court and keep this evidence excluded. Uh, they've been trying to discredit this uh, since the beginning. The blood spatter supposedly... Uh, the defense has not been able to look at this T-shirt the same way the state was able to look at it because after they were the, after the part that you just played, um, they they went ahead after they had tested the shirt, they went ahead and put LCV on it, and uh, crime scene experts from SLED came and did another testing. This LCV actually turned the T-shirt purple. So now the defense is having a hard time at least examining what the state was looking at before. <clears throat> so right now we're in the middle of this major discrepancy about what's actually going to be admitted into evidence. Wow. Okay, guys. And we heard from a sled forensic serologist. Take a listen to our cut eight. Item 15, which were the swabs from the receiver forward of the loading port of the Camo Benelli 12-gauge shotgun, tested positive for the possible presence of blood. Item 16, swabs collected from barrel of Camo Benelli 12-gauge shotgun tested negative for the possible presence of blood. Both sets of swabs were forwarded to the DNA section for further analysis. Okay, I want to examine that one particular phrase. Did you hear what she said? It's item 15, the swabs from the receiver forward of the loading port, the 12-gauge shotgun, tested positive for presence of blood. Okay, the um, other part, the uh, part of the gun was negative. Both sets of swabs were forwarded to the DNA section. So, regarding the gun, why would blood be on the receiver forward of the loading port? What about that to you, uh, Chris McDonough? So, Nancy, there's a couple things going on here. And what the experts will be able to testify to is... Uh, 
one, if the gun was fired, and if it did make an impact, then what would have been what we uh, is called blowback. And when a shotgun is fired, it's sending gas and it's sending these projectiles down, uh, down range. But when it impacts something, and that means all of that blowback potentially could come back uh, and would possibly uh, hit that weapon. Uh, that may be what they're talking about in this particular case. Well, that gun is not the murder weapon. That is the gun, I believe, yep. Ann Emerson, that Murdoch said he went and retrieved right. from the house because he thought the killer may still be on the grounds. But I'm interested that the DNA is found on that particular part of the gun. And there is a mix in our cut nine. We hear about a mix of uh, Maggie and Alex's DNA found on the 12 gauge. Take a listen to our cut nine. This would be state's exhibit 259. What is that item? Um, 259 contains um, sled items 15 and 16, which were swabs um, from the Camo Benelli 12 gauge shotgun. The comparisons would now be um, Margaret Murdoch and Richard Alexander Murdoch contributed to the mixture versus two unidentified, unrelated individuals contributed to the mixture. And the result of that comparison is the DNA profile is approximately 48 quintillion times more likely if Margaret Murdaugh and Richard Alexander Murdaugh contributed to the profile than if two unidentified, unrelated individuals contributed to the profile. Wow, she really knows her stuff, doesn't she? And we also heard Alex Murdaugh in his interrogation in our cut four. I want you to listen and watch his demeanor as he says this. Our cut four. When I got back to the house, the house was obviously nobody was in there. So I figured they're still up here fooling around. Paul was um, gonna be getting set up to plant. Our sunflower seeds got sprayed and died and he was refiguring to do, to plant the sunflower seeds. So I came back up here and I drove up and saw That is not how I would expect a husband to act, finding not just his wife, but his son dead. To Ann Emerson, how is the jury responding to all the evidence? Well, that's a great question. I mean, right now, today, I mean, you know what we were listening to. They, they were listening to a lot of explanations that had to be done methodically and carefully. So I'm gonna be honest, they looked pretty bored. Like for the first part of this today, I saw eyebrows go up a few times when they were really kind of narrowing in on the, the, the DNA and that it was Alec and Maggie or, and or Maggie and Paul's DNA that they were finding, but they weren't finding anybody else's. So I definitely saw the wheels turning a little bit, I think. But there, today, this morning, that was a tough morning for these jurors. Uh, they've got to get through this sort of methodical take on the DNA. But, you know, there's one thing is that we um, out, you know, have finally been able to see some of these redacted body cam videos. And this is what they were looking at. And we were literally watching some of the jurors putting their mouth, putting their hand over their mouth, like aghast at what they were witnessing. Um, from a visual standpoint, to be able to, once I got out of the courthouse today and took a quick look at what they were looking at, it is incredible to see what they had to sort of go through the first day of testimony to be looking at these body camera videos and what was happening. They have a very clear idea, as we are starting to get, of what it really looked like out there on Moselle that night. And do you see them looking over at Murdoch? I do, I do. I, they spend a lot of time now. I think they've gotten a lot more comfortable with being able to go back and forth. And depending on what, who they're listening to, right? If they're listening to one of these um, witnesses, like we heard the housekeeper, uh, confidant, the friend of Maggie who, who got up there, who, who looked very reluctant to be speaking against anybody in the family, really. Um, it was a very hard moment for her. Boy, they were just, their heads were on a swivel. Literally, it was like watching a tennis match 
with she would say something and they would look at, at, at the prosecution or they would look over at the defense table for a reaction. They're also trying to read uh, the defendant right now, right? They're also trying to understand how in the world as jurors are we supposed to make the leap that this white collar crime, as a, as a, a, a great prosecutor told me, um, how do these white collar crimes turn blood red? How does that work? How do we use that motive that they've told us that we're supposed to be looking at and take this this guy that we're staring at every day and make him who the state says he is? Guys, I want you to hear our cut three. Now, the timing of this sound, the timing of Murdoch speaking is critical to what the state is trying to show. Remember, some of this is a month after his wife and son were murdered. Listen. I'm going to direct your attention to July of 2021, uh, specifically July 4th. Did you drive Alex to the airport? I did. Where was he going? I believe he was going to Florida Keys with uh, Maggie's family. And did he say anything to you on that ride to the airport? We talked. Did he tell you anything about the boat case? He did. What did he say? He said that he would like to clear Paul's name. And do what? And beat the boat case? Beat the boat case. So now with Paul gone, he, he's talking about he can beat the boat case. That's correct. This is a month after the murder? That's correct. You know, again, I know that I'm probably projecting, but four weeks after my fiance's murder, shortly before our wedding, I couldn't care less about a lawsuit or returning. I dropped out of school. I didn't care about that. I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to drink. I didn't want to sleep. I didn't want to live. And he's talking about beating a lawsuit. It's over. Paul's dead at all that uh, Mallory Beach's family, that's who he's talking about, the teen girl that was thrown off Paul's boat. Well, it's Murdoch's boat, but Paul was driving it drunk as a skunk and a high as a kite. Um, and they were suing the Murdochs, of course, among others. That's where his head is. This is four weeks after his son, his son and his wife are murdered. Why isn't he out trying to find the killer? Screw a trip down to the Keys. What? Okay, somebody jump in because I find this the most repugnant testimony so far. I can speak from personal experience of losing a son in 2003 who was 20 years old. Uh, I can tell you I can't remember for months what life was like outside of wanting to figure out why. And when we see behaviors like this, uh, just so blatant coming out where, you know, I, I need to, you know, figure out this lawsuit. Uh, it again, it goes back to this idea of all of the problems that I've seen in this is he has injected the cell phone conversations. He's injected the shotgun conversations. He's tried to talk to all of these witnesses uh, and get them to you know kind of go along with his narrative. Um, so this is not the behavior. Uh, in my experience of working over 300 murders in my career, of somebody who's distraught in relationship to a, uh, a victim's family. Uh, now, people grieve differently. I get that. But in this particular case, you know, he's very specific and methodical. And if we go back to that first interview in the car with him where, you know, Sled has him there, I, I'm curious, not to shift gears for a second, but... There's a screen on his phone that looks like an Apple reset screen. Uh, you'll see it towards the end of his conversation here when he starts looking for phone numbers. So uh, if, if you get a chance, take a look at that. And I had a question for, you know, the expert, the digital guy here. Sure, uh, go ahead. Is there evidence that shows he actually reset his phone that night because when you see that phone it's only one of three screens that Apple offers you uh, and they're both the original factory screens and he's got it on his phone as clear as day 
uh, when, you, when you go back and staff can pull it up, uh, you'll see it clear as day. So, what about it, yeah, Go ahead. If he reset his phone, they would lose some important data that's on that phone because what happens, all these keys get lost. And so you're not able to get data. When they reset a phone, it's very difficult to acquire data, really, if any, uh, when you reset a phone. So I'd have to look long and hard at that, that video again and see exactly. But Oh, please do. Please do, Giovanni. Uh, uh, please look at it again. I just want to say that that last bit of sound that Christine played for us, this is four weeks after his wife and his son, his beloved have been murdered. Is he out trying to find the killer? H-E-L-L-N-O. Is he putting up posters? Is he uh, publicizing a reward? No. He's not. He's going on a vacation to the Keys. And he put a time limit on the reward. Yeah. It's completely bass-ackwards. And he's not worried about clearing Paul's name. Paul is dead. He is worried about losing Murdoch money to that lawsuit. Talking about, yeah, I think I can beat the case. I don't know if it hit the jury like it hit me, like a ton of bricks. But that would have been the furthest thing from my mind, trying to save money, when my husband and my child were murdered? No. No. Okay, guys, we're going back in the courtroom, and we're hoping and praying that we don't lose any more jurors to where we have to declare a mistrial and start this whole thing all over. God forbid. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, everybody.